As a vibrant part of campus life, our chapel gathering at Trinity Western creates opportunities for us to hear and be changed by God's story in Jesus through music, teaching, prayer, scripture reading, and storytelling. We're glad you're listening in today. We hope that you encounter God's heart for you and the world. and students of Trinity Western University, I would like to begin by reading Job chapter 11. Then Zophar the Namathite answered, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and calls to judgment, who can hinder him? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild ass's colt is born in a man. If you set your heart aright, you will stretch out your hand towards him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not wickedness dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away, and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning, and you will have confidence because there is hope. You will be protected and take your rest in safety. You will lie down, and none will make you afraid. Many will entreat your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. For all that diversity of literary genres that we find in the Bible, the Bible tells a clear story. And we believe that it's the world story, of which each of us has a part. The story moves from the creation of the world and the placing of our first parents in a garden to our first parents' act of disobedience, followed by God's punishment, expulsion from the garden, and the curse of death. The entire remainder of the biblical story takes us into the unfolding of God's promises to humanity culminating in the coming of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, to save his fallen creatures. Finally, after a long interregnum, Christ will return to bring to fruition his promised kingdom, inaugurating the new heaven and the new earth spoken of in Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21. This is the central biblical narrative, and we who are in Christ have our own unique places within this narrative as we live out God's kingdom in every area of life awaiting our own redemption. If we dig a little deeper into the Bible, which we confess to be the very Word of God, we will see that it contains little Bibles 
smaller narratives that bring the larger story home to a specific person or a set of circumstances. These smaller stories are manifestations of God's grace, snippets of redemption on a microcosmic level, fulfilled promises that hold out hope of a final consummation of God's purposes for his larger creation. The book of Job is one such little Bible. As Gerald Jansen describes it, the shape of Job is a reflection of the larger biblical canon, beginning with an idyllic life of one of God's chosen servants, taking the reader through the sufferings he experiences, the various proposals his friends make to end his sufferings, the intervention of God, followed by the final restoration of his fortunes. At the outset we meet Job, who is rich, not only in material wealth, but in the abundance of his family and friends. He has seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and many, many servants. His sons and daughters seem to spend an awful lot of time partying, feasting and celebrating their blessings in each other's company. Job, we are told, was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Indeed, he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, who exactly this man Job was, we do not know. We do not even know whether he was an Israelite or an inhabitant of a nearby land somewhere along the Fertile Crescent. The Greek Septuagint translation of Job describes him as one of the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, but the Hebrew is silent on this. Who Job was doesn't matter beyond what the book tells us. All we know is that he was a righteous man, loved by God and his fellow human beings alike. Job's righteousness and consequent blessings attract the attention of the adversary, Satan, who shows up when the sons of God come to appear before him. The picture drawn here is one of a throne room with a royal court paying homage to their king. At least that's how it begins, but it quickly turns into a courtroom setting in which Satan issues a challenge to God himself. God draws Satan's attention to Job's righteousness something that Job himself surely would have objected to if he had known about it. Yes, Job fears God, Satan admits, but that's only because God has blessed him. Take away his blessings, Satan proposes, and then see how Job responds. If you afflict him with adversity, he will curse you to your face. What happens next we will likely find rather perplexing, if not downright disturbing. The Lord said to Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power, only do not stretch out your hand against him. In other words, God has permitted Satan to take all of Job's possessions and children, and eventually, after being challenged a second time, to afflict Job himself with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. What a scary thought, that God himself would release us into the hands of Satan as a result of a high-stakes wager in heaven. Is this the God who claims to love us and to care for us? Can we trust a God who would do such thing behind our backs? The book makes no attempt to answer this question, and the entire opening sequence is ignored throughout the remainder of the story as if it had never occurred at all. But there is a larger question that the author does grapple with, a question that has troubled believers down through the millennia. How can a good God, we've all heard it before, how can a good God, how can a good God allow evil to occur, especially to the innocent? The 18th century was the period that we know as the Enlightenment. 
when philosophers, especially in France, but also in other countries, began to think about the possibility that God might not exist. Or if he does, he is very far away, remote from ordinary human concerns. One single event taking place in 1755 ruined the faith of these philosophers. The catastrophic Lisbon earthquake, which destroyed the capital city of Portugal, that great maritime power on the west coast of the Iberian Peninsula with a huge global empire. So great was the suffering of the people of Lisbon following the earthquake that the ancient problem of a good God allowing great evil took center stage. If God is compassionate, loving, merciful, indeed possessing all the attributes that Scripture ascribes to him, how could he possibly allow such natural evils, apparently unrelated to human sin, to happen? Why should the innocent suffer? We needn't go back some 265 years to find similar examples of such suffering. We need only look to the Mexican earthquake of 1985, the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, and so on and so on. These are vexing episodes that we cannot make sense of, try as we might. Even today, Christians who were once devout walk away from the faith after experiencing adversity. Clearly, this is what Satan expected Job to do. Take away everything and everyone he holds dear, afflict him with chronic pain and a disfigured body. Just watch what he does afterwards. Surely he will, reje will reject God and join forces with the fool in Psalms 14 and 53, who denies God and lives for himself. But Job does not do this, even after his own wife advises him to curse God and die. She, too, has suffered the loss of their children and vast possessions. The afflictions visited upon Job are also shared by his wife. She seems not to have handled the losses as well as her husband. We read that in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Well, perhaps he did not sin, but as we see in the rest of the book, Job does an awful lot of complaining. The proverbial patience of Job doesn't always seem an accurate description of what Job says in the chapters following in the initial prologue. What we find there is a protracted conversation between Job and three friends who have come to offer their sympathies, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, eventually to be joined by a younger companion, Elihu, son of Barachel the Buzite, much later in the book. Each of these friends represents the conventional wisdom of the age, that obedience to God will bring health and prosperity. We see this connection between obedience and personal flourishing in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. We see it in the Psalms, including Numbers 1, 37, and 128. Psalm 37, Trust in the Lord and do good, so you will dwell in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We see it in the Proverbs. In the path of righteousness is life, but the way of error leads to death. Chapter 12, verse 28. These are the sorts of passages that Job's friends repeat to him. Job, we're all really sorry that this has happened to you, and we're sympathetic. Really, we are. But if you're suffering so much, it's because you've done something wrong. One by one, each of the three friends thinks he is defending the ways of God against a man who must have done something to deserve this treatment. This is what we see in chapter 11, as Zophar the Namathite chimes in. You should know, Job, that God is exacting from you 
less than your guilt deserves. Ouch! Who would want to be told that while undergoing troubles? There must be something sinful in your heart, otherwise you would still be prospering and enjoying God's favor. Job sits in irritated silence, having no choice but to listen to Zophar drone on in this fashion. Job will come up with a clever retort in the next chapter, but at this point he is quiet, his inner turmoil aggravated by what he is forced to hear from his friend. But, as the saying goes, with, with friends like this, who needs enemies? Let's step back from our story now. We're not leaving Job behind, but we need to reflect further on what we have read. I want to draw out two implications, one personal and the other cosmic in scope. First, the personal. I'll begin with myself. Like many of you, I have suffered from occasional bouts of depression and anxiety. Some 30 years ago, I was depressed, single, and very much alone. I went in to teach every day, but I had to drag myself out of bed to do so. I dreaded the weekends even more than the weekdays, because they only exacerbated my loneliness. Eventually, I was able to pull myself out of depression by altering my diet, avoiding junk food and sweeteners, and getting more exercise. But these measures have not always worked, and I have had to take medication to rectify this. I cannot exactly say that reading Job has helped me through these episodes. For most of my adult life, I prayed through the Psalms on a regular basis, and of course, while many of the Psalms are Psalms of praise, especially near the end of the collection, many more are not. I've sometimes thought, tongue-in-cheek, that if Prozac had been around 2,500 years ago, Job, Ecclesiastes, and a third of the Psalms might not have been written. God's people of both Old and New Covenants experienced horrific suffering, not all, all, not all of which was necessarily related to disobedience. When we suffer, we need not try to explain why. Sometimes we know why, but very often we do not. This is when that patience, which Job may or may not have had, comes in handy. After teaching undergraduate students for 30 years, I think I can safely assume that many of you, students at Trinity Western, are going through tough times. Perhaps you've lost a grand grandparent or even a parent recently. Maybe you've just broken up with someone you had thought you might one day marry. Perhaps you feel the pressure of looming deadlines. You may not be doing as well academically as you would like, and you just have to get that A if you hope to get into law school or medical school. It could be that your family has certain expectations of you that you doubt you can live up to. Some of you may even have come from toxic home environments. The life of a student can be stressful. Your future lies ahead of you. There are choices you have to make, not only about what you will do tomorrow, but about what you will do with the next 50 or more years. What about career? What about marriage? What about family? Civic responsibilities? Responsibilities to a church congregation? These and more occupy your thoughts, even during those less busy moments you spend with friends. Some people relish such challenges. They get fired up and eager to tackle the responsibilities that come with maturity. Others find them daunting in the extreme and cause more for anxiety than for enthusiasm. For all of you, the story of Job has something to offer. God is there, even in the midst of your troubles and anxieties. But there are also cosmic implications of what Job experienced. And this gets us back to Jansen's notion of Job as a microcosm of the scriptures as a whole. Despite our knowing so little about Job as a person, he occupies an important place in the larger salvation story of the Bible. We see in Job's life a capsule history of the world, from Eden's lush garden that brings great delight, 
the Adam's rebellion and fall from God's grace. The consequent misery is that worsen our plight, to God's intervention to die in our place, that we might know we might know joy and yet live in His light. Job represents a signpost to God's coming kingdom. His sufferings anticipate the sufferings of Jesus Christ in our behalf. Even Jesus Himself, hanging on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem, found Himself venting to God in anguish, quoting the opening words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When our own sufferings in this life become unbearable, when we are tempted to think that we have been abandoned by God, it is then that we need to look to Jesus Christ, for only in Him will we find the answers to our questions. Much as God did not try to explain His ways to Job, so also today we should not expect God to satisfy all our doubts, to justify Himself before our questioning. What we should expect is what God has already done for us. And that means looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank you very much, and may God bless you. Thanks for listening. We hope to worship with you at our next broadcast online at livechapel.twu.ca. You can also stay connected with Chapel and Student Ministries by following us on Instagram at TWUChapel and at TWUStudentMin. Much love.